Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. If you haven't heard, my leadership development course is now in full swing and it's getting great reviews. It's called From Boss to Leader. And if you like the theme of the podcast, hey, you're going to love this course. It's intended for emerging leaders and managers that want to learn real leadership competencies, the everyday stuff that you need in order to engage and inspire and motivate your team for a high performance. I'd love to personally speak with you and get to know your current situation to see if you're a good fit for the course. To learn more about the From Boss to Leader course, visit my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Virtual Training. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From our studios in Chattanooga, Tennessee, USA, welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, where we bring you the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts to talk about transforming your workplaces and growing your business through the powerhouse principles of love and care. Glad you are here. Love in action in the context of today's episode is about empowerment, more specifically, empowerment leadership. But let me be straight with you. If you're going to play the game of empowerment leadership, and we're going to get into that in great detail. If you're going to play this game right, know that it's not about you. Instead, leadership depends on how well you unleash the potential of other people. That is the radical redefinition of leadership from a brand new book called Unleashed, the unapologetic leader's guide to empowering everyone around you. The authors, Francis Fry and Ann Morris have already made headlines by putting their theory into practice with disruptive impact. Harvard Business School professor Francis Fry was hired to turn around Uber's toxic culture. We've read it already in the past. I'll touch on that in a minute. And she's also credited with transforming Harvard Business School to become more gender inclusive. She joins me today to speak candidly about those two experiences as well as teach us how to be more inclusive and, and apply the laws of practical love to your leadership. So as I mentioned, Frances Fry is a professor at Harvard Business School. She also recently served as Uber's first SVP of Leadership and Strategy. And you may have caught her TED Talk about building trust, which has logged over 4 million views and counting. She was described in a recent Los Angeles Times article as the, quote, the go-to woman for companies like Uber and WeWork looking to improve their image. She's made headlines in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Post, among many others. Such an honor to have you on the show, Francis. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so privileged to be here. This is going to be fun. It is going to be fun. It's, Our pre-talk was great. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wish we had recorded that, too. That might yeah. well be another segment. But uh, we start with a gratitude moment, and that is what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days. Oh, um, 
lying in bed and listening for footsteps and wondering, is it going to be the dog or the two boys? And it's just <laughs> a smile for which one, is, which one we're going to hear first. How old are your boys? 12 and 8. 12 and 8. Well, I got a 7-year-old too, and he's been dying to get back in the swimming pool with the pandemic closing down all pools. We just heard today the pool is reopening. I had to peel him off the ceiling. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> Let's get our listeners acquainted with you and your work a bit. But, you know, rather than a description of what you do, which I kind of already done in the introduction, I'm more interested in what drives you. What would you say is your why? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I feel like my time on the planet is best used if I can remove the obstacles that are in the way of individuals and companies thriving. If I have a special gift, I can see, I can help right-size boulders that appear to you as pebbles and help you sweep them away. And so I, I feel it. like I'm a street sweeper, I guess, is the... <laughs> I, I love that imagery. There's, uh, it reminds me of the sort of the unofficial definition of compassion. Um, so let's get into why you decided to write this book. I mean, for instance, there's a million leadership books out there. Why this one? Why now? Yeah, and I've really read uh, many leadership books and liked, liked them a lot. It was when I was uh, at Uber and we had finished the cultural turnaround and I was heading back to HBS. I had taken a leave and I realized that there were really some stubborn leadership problems in this accelerating of uh, people. Yeah. And I, Anne and I had an idea of how to overcome it and we had practiced it a lot. And so it's like, do I take an extra year and finish the book or do I just keep the knowledge private? And that's not we can't live with keeping the knowledge private. Anything we know, we want to spread to other people. So I felt like we had some insights that would help, uh, help unblock some leader's potential. Yeah, yeah. I love the, um, the definition that, well, it's your definition, and it's at the beginning of the book. So, and, uh, so in your own words, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it for our listeners. You describe it like this, leadership, is about empowering other people as a result of your presence and making sure that impact continues into your absence. So the way I read this is, well, your impact extends beyond being in the trenches with your people so that when you're not around and even after you leave the company, maybe permanently and move on, your influence remains and people are still being empowered even in your absence. Does that sound right? It's exactly right. And, yeah. and that is, I mean, that's what happens with great leaders is that it's not a very ego nourishing thing at first glance because your, our egos get nourished if when we leave, things fall apart. People are like, oh my gosh, we miss you so much. <laughs> you know, yeah. we can't do it without you. That's like a great sign maybe of an individual contributor, but a terrible sign of a leader. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get into this uh, illustration of empowerment le leader. And, and so I'm going to depict it like this visually. It's the rings that make up a target. So the first ring is the bullseye in the middle, which is the foundation for empowerment leadership. So we'll get to that in a second. So sure. as, as you move outward with each ring, you say that you gain the skills as a leader to empower more and more people. So 
Walk us through that, starting with the bullseye. Sure. And so the bullseye is trust, and you start with a foundation of trust. And that's when it's our obligation to be trusted by other people. And as we talk about in the book, you have a great deal of control over that. In fact, when other people don't trust us, it's our fault, and then we have ways of overcoming it. So that's at the center of the bullseye. Then the next layer is, how can I set one other person up for success? And we go into that in love, but it's what can I do for one other person? And then after that, it's what can I do for a, a group, a team of, so more than one and more varied. So it goes from myself at trust, love is one person at a time, belonging is for more and more varied. And that's what I can do in my presence. It then goes to what influences more and more people in our absence. The first thing is strategy. So like if the strategy is super well understood to people, even when I'm not there, they're going to be making the decisions that we want them to make. And then the next one is culture. And culture is everywhere where strategy is silent, culture takes over. And culture doesn't stop at the organization's bounds. Culture also extends to our customers. So it starts with ourselves at trust and goes all the way past the bounds of the organization with culture. Yeah. And it explains something like Southwest Airlines. You know, Herb Kelleher is long gone, God rest his soul. And yet, look at Southwest Airlines, still outperforming most airlines, right? And extended all the way to the customers. Yes, yes. Wow, that's awesome. I love that. So let's get into um, the Uber story. This is really fascinating to me. You were asked to come in and help change the culture at, at Uber at a time when the company, as you called it, was a a hot mess. (laughs) And we've all read it, uh, you know, for years ago, what was going on with uh, their former CEO, uh, Travis Kalanick. We've read uh, Susan Fowler experiences, her experiences with harassment and discrimination in that blog that went viral. But you were there, you were in the trenches, working right there. Uh, behind the scenes. So talk, walk us through, the, what did you see, what happened, and, and was what you saw, did, what the media portrayed, was it accurate with what you were seeing uh, on, in the grounds, on the ground? That's a, great, that's a great question. And I, Susan Fowler wrote the blog of her tragic uh, experience there in February of 2017. And I got a call in March of 2017. And so I was... Um, interacting with them on a part-time basis and then joined full-time on June 1st. And I, like you, I mean, I read the everything, including her blog, and I didn't even want to go out and talk to them because it just, like, who's going to go there? Um, But there was a former student who asked me, who worked there, who I respected a lot, and she said, please come out and talk to Travis. And I was like, well, he's the last person I want to talk to after what I've read. Um, She said, he's going to appear very different uh, to, she, he appears very different to me. Just please give it a chance. So I went out to meet with him and, um, you know, we were going to meet for an hour and we met for three days. Mm. Uh, and this was a man who was super humbled, like, and needed help and said, and the way I knew that is he asked for help. He was like, look, the last organization I led had eight people. This one has more than 10,000 people. And I, I'm not getting this leadership thing right at all. Um, And so will you come in and help? And he also said, 
on the strategy side, because strat- it, like strategy and culture are just, they're intertwined. He said, I understand the strategy, but I'm not doing a good job of having it well understood by everybody in the organization. And so people are working at cross purposes, sometimes like really actively. And so we're not making the forward momentum we should. So the first thing I thought, I saw him and he, he was humbled and I was like, okay, but then I want to see everyone else. So I think I interacted with like 1500 people before I joined mm. in either small group settings, teaching various things, because I wasn't going to go work for dopes or work with dopes. Yeah. I have to say they were awesome. Mm. I mean, they were embarrassed. So no one wanted to admit they worked at Uber. Nobody wanted to wear an Uber t-shirt, um, but they really wanted to learn um, and the way what I saw is that people that people were doing things that no one taught them how to do. So you'd get hired as an individual contributor and five minutes later, you'd be a manager of people because of the growth. And five minutes after that, a manager of managers with never getting any, any help on how to manage and how to manage managers. And so then when we looked at the problems and if you look at Susan Fowler's just horrific blog. I mean, magnificent in its in what it did and how well written, but just what her experience was. You can just see so many management breakdowns, mm. so many. And so we went in and diagnosed that, well, there could be 3,000 bad managers, or it could be that no one has educated them. So we set up a curriculum to educate all of the managers and did a, a whole bunch of work that way. And within nine months, it would be impossible to imagine anything that was in Susan Fowler's blog ever happening again at the company. And that's, we were done in 2018. We're two years later. It's still impossible to imagine anything that was in her blog ever happening again. Wow. That speaks volume. So let's go back to, uh, you know, March, I guess. It's a, the, Susan's blog comes out. And as they say, the fit hit the shan <laughs> with the, the PR nightmare. Oh no, Uber is a toxic culture etc. What about that culture was broken right when you arrived that you yeah. felt, okay, this has got to be fixed? No, it's great. So um, it, like a lot of startups, uh, was really had the cult in culture. And so I love culture, but a lot of strong cultures are cult-like. And now that could be a bad thing or a good thing, but it was definitely a cult. Many organizations that are like that tied to the culture, they really live by their values and their stated values. And everyone would pass the test of, I think they had 12 values or something like that. Everyone would pass the test. In fact, when they did a behavior, they would write hashtag such and such value. Like it was, this was just a value driven organization. The problem was when we got there is that, and all of the values made beautiful sense, right? because nobody puts in dopey values. They all made beautiful sense and collectively exhaustive, just <laughs> But what happened when I got there is a bunch of the values were weaponized. And by that, instead of being used for their like really glorious intention, they were being used to hold back other people and to get your own means. But then you'd still use hashtag that value. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. Toe-stepping and meritocracy, but toe-stepping is the first part of the value. It's like a wonderful value. It meant that if your manager is silencing you, step on their toes to go to the above them. We don't want ever want an idea to be stifled in the organization. It was meant to toe-step on the way up. In practice, 
it was toe-stepping on the way down. Mm. And people even started to feel justified in that toe-stepping. Another value was pioneering. Like, how you're a startup, you're starting a new space. How cool is that? And it was magnificent, except when I got there, there was so much re-pioneering going on. No one was telling anyone else about their pioneering. So I just operationally saw so much waste because you were like on this frontier and there were 10 other people on their independent frontiers. If, I mean, just a little coordination, but it was like, I'm going to do it. And it was a race and it was almost like, I'm going to put the blinders on and just go be a pioneer and not be distracted by other people. So, so things were just um, really great intentions, but they had become weaponized. And once I've learned now, once a cultural value is weaponized, there is no clawing it back. Hmm. So I think Travis initially was like, well, look, people just are misunderstanding. Let me explain again. And I have watched CEO after CEO do that. And as soon as like it's out there and weaponized, you just got to let it go and yeah. start again, yeah. even if you loved it. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm really intrigued as a, as a, as a leadership practitioner coach myself, what was the, what was that first strategy to get people going in the right direction? What did you do? Yeah. So the first thing we started with was trust. So I had a way of teaching trust. I preferred to do it with a case discussion so that I could, and a case discussion so that you could discuss it really in depth with someone else. And we could be super analytical about someone else. In fact, I made it like the case I picked was like 40 years earlier in a completely different industry so that you could really like get your analytical minds out, do that. And then I said, okay, now let's apply it to us. And so it would take like four hours, case discussion, and then the rest. Um, but then everyone was like beautifully identifying it for themselves. And we, mm. and everyone loved it because it gave the clarification of trust. And, you know, the experience, once you understand that trust isn't something that you're super sad if it's broken, but you don't know how to fix it. Once you understand that you have control of the levers, it just was like so eye-opening for everyone as individuals and then for people on behalf of the organization. And so there was such a rapid uptick that by the time I left, we were teaching 2,500 people at a time, classes on leadership and classes on strategy, 2,500 at a time. Most organizations, all voluntary. Most organizations, you put a class out, you're going to get 100 people. Yeah. yeah. You just got thousands and thousands. Everyone yeah. wanted to learn. Mm. Okay. So if I get this straight, um, looking at that, that bullseye, you know, that target, are you saying that if anybody listening has a broken culture, a toxic workplace, that they should start with trust? With certainty. Mm. In fact, don't bother with the other things because they will crumble without a foundation of trust. Interesting. So you found that there are three traits that are missing in organizations that lack trust, or to put it another way, if you want to earn more trust, you have to have these three in place. What role does each play in building a trust, in building a trustworthy culture and, and unleashing others to do their best work? Could you walk us through those three traits? To. Yeah, so uh, trust is a monolithic idea. It can be, if you double click on it, it can be broken down into authenticity, logic, and empathy. And I'll tell you how those fit together. But what's yeah. important is that if the diagnosis is authenticity, the prescription to empathy isn't going to work. And if the diagnosis is logic, the prescription from authenticity isn't going to work. So the reason that people haven't been able to make much progress on trust is they kept trying to move trust without understanding its very different but comprehensive component parts. So here's what they are. 
you are more likely to trust me if you believe it's the real me talking to you. Said differently, if you think I'm saying something that I don't believe, trust is the first thing to go. So if mm. my manager comes up with an idea that I don't agree with, but I have to go tell it to other people, and you think I'm being a good team player when I do that, the cost is that everyone you just spoke to isn't going to trust you because they doubt your authenticity. So that's the first one. The second one is, okay, I have authenticity. Is what I'm saying, does it make sense? <laughs> like, like, is there logic and reason? Is it well-reasoned? I can have all of the authenticity in the world, but if it's not well-reasoned, people aren't going to trust me. And then the real me with super rigorous logic. But you know what? I'm in it for me. It doesn't feel like I'm really in it for you. I've, you're, like, I'm in it for you only insofar as your needs overlap with my needs. That's empathy, and that's the third one. So each one of those can derail trust. You have to have all three at the same time. Yeah, and, and let's talk about the derailing part for a minute. And you say that everyone has a, quote, wobble in each of those three, authenticity, empathy, or logic. And, but one of those three attributes is most likely to get really, really shaky and really wobbly in, in periods of low trust. What's an example of that? Yeah, so I would say that, and this is, I think, particularly true now when we're in this global epidemic, the most likely wobble that people will have is empathy. Mm. And I think the reason is because right now, so many of us have to put the oxygen mask on ourselves, like, because we got stuff going on. Like, I don't know what's going on with you. You don't know what's going on with me, but we can bet there's a lot there, a lot more than pre-pandemic. So that means we all have to put the oxygen mask on ourselves, which is great, but we're not leading when we do that. We're not building trust when we do that. We're building trust when we're putting oxygen mask on other people. So I would say that because we're taking care of ourselves, because we're self-distracted, it's easy for us to leave empathy at the door because empathy is really the art of being like fully immersed in you. Um, so that one I think is the one that is, uh, if you aren't sure which one, but if you're not sure which one, ask someone who knows you and loves you and they'll tell you which one it is and they'll be mm -hmm. right. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I would say if you want a first place to start, take a good look at empathy today. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So moving outside of that, that bullseye, the yeah. next, the outer ring, uh, you call it love, which I yes. love. <laughs> and that's the <laughs> chapter three of your book. And you depict love as empowering people by setting high standards and revealing deep devotion to them. We're going to uncover these. So how does uh, setting high standards for yourself and for your top performers make everyone on your team feel loved and empowered rather than, you know, stressed out? Yeah. And so the trick is, first of all, this is a one-to-one -one interaction. So each person, and so love, it's like, I can express love to you if you experience my high standards and deep devotion, and then I can do it to the next person and the next person. Let's think of the, let's think of the absence of them. If I don't set high standards for you, it's really hard for you to thrive. Like people thrive in the presence of high standards. But to your point on the stressed out, if I have high standards without revealing super deep devotion, you're just mm -hmm. going to get stressed out and get angsty. And we are not going to have a human connection. So what usually happens is I set high standards without the devotion and it doesn't feel good. And then like complaints come in <laughs> and I get feedback and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm doing high standard without devotion. I need to show devotion. And then people scramble to show a lot of devotion and along the way they insidiously lower the standards. So now they're deep devotion, but low standards. And then they get furious with themselves 
for the performance hit. And yeah. then they go back up and they just go back and forth and back and forth. And so what we have found is that there's two things you have to do to, to bring out the best in someone. And we think that is the greatest act of love. And that is learn how to do both at the same time, yeah. which is that you have to equally feel my devotion to you as my standards for you. Uh, and that we have to get off the trap of thinking that one is a substitute for the other. Hmm. Francis, it reminds me a lot of uh, when I look at servant leadership in its definition of the word, you break it down. People think they focus only on the servant's part and forget that the leadership part of servant Absolutely. leadership is setting those high standards and, and holding people accountable for high performance. But of course, they do it with the love and care attached to that. So that's the, the conditions necessary for a great leader. Um, okay, those you, you got you got these sidebars in your book. Then we were talking offline. I called it "This is a gift" because it's it, these are practical prescriptions uh, for putting these things into action. So you you prescribe ten ways we can be more loving by setting high standards to raise the bar for the people around us. Can you walk us through just a few of those? Yeah, sure. And so, um, it, you know, it's if if you believe in the tenant that. Um, very, very, very few people thrive in the presence of low standards. If I'm going to help you get better, I'm going to raise the standards. Yeah. And so, but I want to raise the bar in a way that is motivating. So you know how sometimes your goals are motivating and sometimes your goals are infuriating. We, we want to set the high standards in a way that they're the motivating goals. So we have to set good goals. We have to set bar, the, a, good, uh, a good standard for people. And so if I look at the and I opened up because you got to tell me of the <laughs> of of these. But one of them is set better goals, right? That's that's number six, and that speaks right to this: that yeah. the goals have to be something that motivates you to do more. It has to be something that makes you want to achieve, as opposed to makes you want to go under the covers. Mm. And so. Of the 10, I mean, another one, I guess my favorite, you were going to ask me of the 10, what's my favorite? Uh -huh. It's celebrating a win. Because if, if we've worked really hard and we have a win, I find that corporations and individuals do too little celebration on the really hard stuff. I want us to celebrate it so that we want to do it again, so that we want to achieve it again. And so it's like, I think sports teams get this right. You know, they totally celebrate wins. <laughs> I look in practice and people are like, oh, no, you know, it was nothing. No, 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 it was everything. So yeah. when we do our after action review, the first thing I always ask for are the Scooby snacks. What went well? Not what went wrong. What went well so that we can do that repeatedly and do more and more of that going forward? So it's in those ways that we set high standards. Yeah, it makes a difference psychologically and emotionally for people to feel like they are valued, right? When you oh, celebrate yeah. the team and you yeah. pop, and you, you know. And they're seen. Yeah. Yes, they are. Yeah. 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 And yeah. It, of course, it helps if the leaders are giving them credit and not taking credit, not stealing the oh, spotlight. Away that's, from yeah. So that we could have put in a top 10 list of how <laughs> 10 ways to lower standards tomorrow. <laughs> and one, you just got the one at the top of the list. Take credit for your team's work. <laughs> right. I love the, uh, the other person, I, I call it prescriptions, really. I mean, you prescribe yeah. the uh, 10 ways to show real devotion, right? To, or to yeah. reveal deep devotion in your own words. How can we show devotion to the people around us? I mean, what does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, it starts in simple ways, but it can be when you're doing work, like asking people, um, how can I help? 
in fact, in every meeting, how can I help? And then be, uh, and be super attuned to doing that because there could be a small obstacle. And then that's like level one. Level two, be so in tuned with your team and with the people on your team, you don't even have to ask how you can help. Proactively help. Mm. <laughs> so if I see an obstacle in the way, I don't want to wait for you to bump into it. And I don't want to sweep it away and say, oh, look, I swept it away. In fact, I just want to go and get rid of it and let you, and let you keep going. So if I'm really in tuned with you, I, like, I want to show that I'm on your side and I want to reveal that. So other ways, I mean, it's how, but feeding people, <laughs> like, like fulfilling their basic needs is a wonderful way to show devotion. So anything I can do that acknowledges your humanity you know, acknowledging that you have a life outside of work. So if I see someone, you know, slinking out of the office I, because they're going to do something and they're, you know, they're going to a, a soccer game. The next day I'll say, I, you know what, the last time I went to my child's soccer game, it was awesome. And I want to encourage everyone else to do it too. I've just taken the shame off of their doing it by making it an acceptable thing to do. So it's like really being in tuned with the other person's humanity. Yeah, I love it. Chapter four, Francis, is about belonging. And so this is where we get into diversity and inclusion and um, gender equity and the like. And this is really interesting to me because you're a female professor at Harvard Business School and a gay woman. And yet you took on this huge problem of gender inequality that had been around for a long time. I mean, Harvard Business School is what, over 100 years old now? So I want to find out how you succeeded in changing the culture to become more gender inclusive. I mean, I'm very curious. How did you dissect the problem? And then- So I'd love to do it. And it's a we, not a me, right? So there was a, a, a small core team. Um, I think Margaret Mead did, said, never doubt the ability of a small group to change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever had. We had that for Excellent. sure. Excellent. Uh, and then there was a very large extended team. Um, but the small core team um, that we had, what we did is that we had heard about these longstanding things. And they were just longstanding, like horrible things that women were encountering at HBS. And this went back to a, I think a 1998 Inc. magazine did an expose on HBS and said that if you were a woman visiting a class at Harvard, the chance that you would get an anonymous note passed to you down the aisle and opening it up and it being sexually explicit was very high. Mm. Like that and anything else like that, it's just gross and it's obviously exclusive not inclusive so when we uh, when Nathan Noria became the dean and he had um, he brought in a new leadership team for the MBA we saw the data and we saw that women had lower self-reported satisfaction than men by like on a scale of 100 by 35 points so this isn't like a little and it's self-reported right. this isn't a little it's a lot women also had much lower GPAs than men. So their achievement was less and their sentiment was lower. That to me is a sign of a broken culture. So mm. any of the listeners want to know like, how is my culture doing? Take a look at achievement and sentiment, your version of GPA and self-reported satisfaction. If there are demographic tendencies associated with who's thriving, your culture is broken. Mm. If there aren't, go work on something else. 
Like that is the, that's the thing that will do it. So there were enormous demographic tendencies. And by the way, it wasn't just women and men. It was with a lot of groups, but I'll focus on that for this conversation. And so um, we knew that a lot of the stuff that was happening was not happening in the classroom. So I mentioned when a visitor came to the classroom, but a lot of the things that we learned that were having women be unsatisfied was happening at it felt like school events because it was with students, but it wasn't in the classroom. And I think prior to that, the school had taken a hands-off approach to, look, what happens outside of the classroom is not in our domain. And we were like, what happens outside of the classroom is really bumming out the women. It's, our, it's in our domain. So I think we were more presumptuous in saying, like, the whole time they have come to HBS, this is our thing. So we addressed that first, which is, and the way we did it, and I'm going to describe it like it was simple, but we had to figure all of this out. But we have beautiful community values at HBS, and it's like a plaque on every wall. We gave an interpretation of those community values. So we didn't change any of the words. It was still two long paragraphs, but we summarized it for people. And the way we summarized it, we said, if anyone violates the dignity or respect of one of, of a person in our community, we are going to swiftly address it in a way that you would want a great institution to do so. Who's going to, who, like, that is such a noble purpose. Mm -hmm. And we meant it. We, like, we cherish the dignity and respect of everyone. And so we're going to reveal it. Mm -hmm. So what that meant, and the way we said it is we were like, so students, if you choose to lead an event outside of the classroom, first, thank you. <laughs> like, just thank you. It's so important. Second, how can we help? Third, as the leader of the event, everyone is responsible for their own behavior. And as the leader, you are also responsible for everyone else's behavior who comes to that event. They were like, whoa, 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 whoa. But then they very quickly were like, oh, right, this is a school of leadership. We signed up for it. This is what we want to learn to do. Let's go. Yeah. They ended up having events with no incidents and events always had incidents. The events had no incidents. And more importantly, the events got better because it got to unleash the magnificent creativity of the students there. It's like the people thrive in the presence of constraints. It's totally true. So we got to see like the students. And now if you look at the events that the students have, they're just magnificent. Mm. So it took a year and the satisfaction between men and women closed. But importantly, men's satisfaction went up. Men's satisfaction went up by 10 points. Women's satisfaction went up by 45 points. Like, and then, and again, also for every demographic, for every group, it closed and went up, which then totally emboldened us. <laughs> yeah. um, we also then on the grade side, we did some analysis and we found that half of every grade at HBS is class participation and half is a final exam. It wasn't in the variation in the final exam that was causing the real big discrepancy. It was class participation. And when we did a double click on that, we found that there were some groups, women, disproportionately represented that took longer to find their voice in the classroom. Well, that taking longer dug them in a hole for class participation. So we, we put in place a lot of things that would help people find their voice, find it strongly and find it swiftly so they wouldn't get behind the curve. Mm -hmm. so we did a whole bunch of things to help people find their voice. We didn't need to train people to have better thoughts. Their thoughts were great. It was just in the finding your voice in like a really weird 90-person room. Um, and so we did a whole bunch of things to help them swiftly and strongly find their voice. And then that closed that gap as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. What about the gaps in, in the faculty area? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. The, the lack of uh, diversity and inclusion with, with yeah. that. Yeah. So, um, and that was after the MBA experience, Nithin asked me to, said, okay, so it worked with the students. Now go do it with the faculty. And by the way, the students just come for two years. So you'll outlast every one of them. You're not going to outlast any of the faculty. They were here before you and they'll be here after you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> okay, got it. Um, and so what we did there, and it's what I recommend all of the listeners do, is the first thing we did is look, created the indignities list. And that is, what were the indignities associated, if any, associated with being a woman on the faculty at HBS? And we, and I, and if there's nothing on that list, again, go do something else. Right. And the way you can create an indignities list is go and talk to people. The indignities list very quickly got populated. It got populated with things that were invisible to others. So it's not like everyone was else was like, oh, let me engineer a place where it's not going to create the conditions for women to thrive as much as men. Not at all. It was invisibly happening. In fact, my colleagues I knew to be like super caring about this and super energetic and flummoxed. So when we went and found the indignities list, here are things that we found on it. The daycare that we had on campus, which was magnificent as it should be, um, opened after the first teaching group meeting on campus. So daycare opened after our first meeting, our first important meeting. No one had ever complained about that when it was almost all men on the faculty. But when we started hiring women, there were complaints, but it was really hard to complain at HBS because if you complain about something, it could be that you're not being a team player. You don't want to be seen as selfish. It's a very, everyone feels super lucky to be there. Like none of us feels worthy to be there. So we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. So a lot of people had this dirty little secret problem, which is I can't drop my kid off at childcare. And, and I, as the mom was disproportionately responsible for dropping them off. So we, with that on the indignities list, the, the fix is pretty easy, right? Like have the daycare open earlier or the meeting start later, which was ultimately the fix. And that ended up today, men and women are both dropping off kids. But I have to say at the time was really not met very well because people that were running those meetings were had the, you know, we cross country skied uphill both ways to get there. Like how dare we make it easier for someone else? Um, and so the, the fears that people had about doing it was a little bit warranted by just a few individuals. Uh, so I'd say I took a lot of uh, heat uh, for make, like, how, like, how dare you heat? But I was like, look, bring it all on me because for sure I'm setting the conditions for women to thrive. Um, and then it turns out it was better for everyone, which I have found that when you make the world better for women, you yeah. make it better for everyone. In fact, if it didn't make it better for everyone, we'd probably have to rethink how to do it. Yeah. So it yeah. was things like that. It was like the, and so we turned the indignities list as much as we could into the dignity list. And that's the way, that's the way to do it. And I have a, tons of these. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You mentioned something really interesting that this is invisibly happening when we talk about um, why we see so much still in, in 2020, yeah. right? Yeah. Issues of diversity and inclusion. So speak to this being invisibly happening. What did you mean by that and why is it? Yeah, so like, listen, chances are if I go into a company today and if my yeah. assessment of if, if you only give me 
an hour to diagnose whether the culture has a problem. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to listen to see if any of the uh, any of the cultural values are weaponized. And I'm going to look at the data and look to see are women and men thriving at the same rates. So like if there's 50% women in the organization, but 5% women at the top of the organization, I don't have to look any further. Like, right, there's a huge cultural problem today. Now, that doesn't mean anyone was like actively doing something wrong and everyone will have their reason. Oh, we can't find any women. It's like, it's an amazing statement that is still said in 2020. And anyone who has ever said that in one day, I show them women who are more qualified than anything that they've been looking at. So like, but anyway, we can, we can get into that. So it's, and I just got on a rant and forgot where I was there. Yeah. Oh, why is it happening today? Yeah. Why is yeah. it still happening? It's but an invisible the, thing though. We're not aware of it. Oh, but it, yeah. But so you know what the metrics are. You're not aware of it. So go treat it like every other problem you're not aware of. Look, companies that can land a spaceship on the moon or that can do like incredible things get flummoxed by this. Like, here's the thing that doesn't make sense to me. All of our rigor and analytics and accountability and we can do it it like evaporates when it comes to gender and race. I don't understand it, but you know what? I'm not going to judge. I wrote a book to help, to just give the prescriptions for how to do it. I do not want race and gender and sexual orientation and whether you're a vet. Like, I don't want any of those to be interesting descriptors for how someone thrives. Mm. And I... And it is within the control of the ingenuity of all of these magnificent leaders and companies, but we get really squirrely when it comes and like, and we get into a defensive crouch. And so I just want to bring some can-do spirit. <laughs> and the reason I wanted to do it at Uber and at other places, I want to show that if you can do it at the hardest places successfully, everyone else has license to do it. And if your situation is worse than Uber in 2017, maybe you think you can't do it. But if yours is better. And by the way, that's everyone. Well, we have examples of it being done and we wrote what we did in the book so that you don't have to call us, just read the book. Yeah. Yeah. One of the strategies, and by the way, we have a lot of HR leaders, high level HR people on the call. And one of the strategies that, uh, that often fails in making a, a workplace more diverse and inclusive, especially for women, Uh, looking to move up into the higher ranks is the recruitment process. So what are some ways we can improve it to promote more diversity? Yeah. So, and, and I think that HR and we have four levers, right? We have recruitment, development, promotion, retention. Those are your four levels. And if you don't have, if women aren't thriving equally to men, it's in one of those four areas. So it's not any more complicated than that. On the recruitment side, there's really two parts to it. It's are women, you know, coming to apply if they're not, we have to go find women. Or are we not able to get them to yes? Two very different challenges. So you got to know which of the challenges it is. Um, and the solutions, as you can imagine, the prescriptions are different for all of them. So if women aren't applying, that I would say, like, here's the pie of humanity. And if you're great, all what you're doing now, keep doing it. Acknowledge who it attracts. So if women aren't applying, your systems are great for attracting men. Keep doing it every time you want to attract a man. Please keep doing it. It works. Don't change a thing. But acknowledge it's failing at attracting women. So just like you would in any other part of your business. So now, how do we recruit differently for different demographics? Mm. And then we'll do that. So um, a common one, women in tech, 
right? Yeah. Oh, can't find any women in tech. Uh, seriously? Like, okay. Like, let me have two days in your life and you will find more women in tech than you could ever possibly hire. And here are the two things to do. One, go to the Grace Hopper Conference, which has 15,000 women in tech get together every year. And I promise you, they're looking to upgrade their jobs. So that one, and it, like, and be like super present there. But if you can't simultaneously say, what's Grace Hopper? And I can't find any women in tech. Like those, those are not allowed to. <laughs> and then the other one is um, uh, go to Lesbians Who Tech. So this is a conference in San Francisco. It's now bridged out to uh, New York. It's got 5,000 amazing lesbians in tech. So loads of women go there. If you go to those two places and can't find anyone to hire, please call me and I will accompany you because it would be impossible. So, but notice that is not where any of the recruiting was done before. Like, so the first thing is acknowledge who your recruiting practices are attracting and be like not defensive about it, but just say, oh my God, like I've been working with some companies that are amazing at attracting international men. Amazing. They get the best international men in the world. So don't change a thing for attracting the next international man. But if you have all the international men you need, do things differently. So that's on the attracting. On the getting to yes part, which is a separate thing, here's what I find often happens with, if you're trying to hire an awesome woman and you find an awesome woman, you find a woman, honestly, that you're not worthy of hiring, but you're going to try anyway. She's doing great somewhere else. You excitedly talk to her and you get her sold on the mission. You get her sold on everything. And then you're like, okay, I want to take a pause in the recruitment process. I just got to go and do some other things. You've lost her. Because women are used to hearing mixed messages all the time. So don't try to hire an awesome woman until you're ready to hire an awesome woman. And then do it. Don't prolong it because I promise you her company is going to hear about it and is going to do something to keep her. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Francis, I love this idea of unleashing people. I mean, the book yeah. is, is titled Unleashed and, you know, unleashing them to reach their full potential. And we're about three months into this pandemic now, and some people are coming back slowly to work inside their, their buildings and offices, but many are still back working remotely. Why is unleashing people so vital to oh, sustaining gosh. their morale and their productivity during this crisis. Yeah, so if I have direct reports of 10 people, um, I maybe had like one-on-one -on -one meetings with them when we were, but I would see them a lot otherwise. Like we would bump into each other. I could do informal development, you know, at the water cooler. I can't do any unscheduled development now. <laughs> so what we have to do to make sure that we're unleashing other people is that if I used to meet with you one hour a week, I have to meet with you twice a week. Now I would recommend it to be for 45 minutes because an hour is a long time on zoom. One of those has to be for development. One of those is for like, tell me about your to-do list and that, but one of them is okay. Now, how can, how can we make you better? Like our goal right now should be making every person's CV better in three months. By their CV, I mean like they're enriched. 
Like, let's make sure they're getting developmental opportunities. And those developmental opportunities could be stretchable. It could be education. But let's, like, we want to make sure that we're enriching people right now. That's a way to make them better off. And by the way, we're not giving them beach time. We're saying, like, high standards and deep devotion. I want you to learn this new skill because I'm, it's going to be so awesome for your success. And I'm going to give you the space to do it. So I think that I would, I would say that everyone, I mean, you know what it's like to be home. Like, look at where you are. I was joking, you're in a spare bedroom somewhere. Like, like <laughs> we need to be enriched. We need someone else to reach out and to care about us. And uh, I think it's the most important thing to do so that our engagement meter doesn't go down to 20%, but it stays up at 70, 80, 90%. Yeah, yeah. So we have this tradition here on the show where we talk about love and fear and, you know, we know practical love works. The evidence is overwhelming. This whole yeah. episode so far has been about practical love. But uh, there is its counterpart, which I believe is fear, and it's still prevalent in how organizations are managed. So the question I always ask my guests is, why do you think people still lead through fear when love and care leads to business outcomes? Yeah, I think uh, because the leaders are scared um, of not having complete control. So in the end, the leaders really think it's still about them. So it, they think that the, these, every decision will be better if I weigh in. And so I'm going to, and if you make a wrong decision, I'm going to be like, if you had included me, I could have told you what the right thing to do is. As opposed to, my job is to set people up to be making decisions in my absence. But that, provide, that means, like, you got to do a lot of development of people. You have to show your devotion. And people think that that's going to take longer. Like, oh, I don't have time today to reveal my devotion. I promise you, you're going to be super sad tomorrow. But I think that people, you know, they get, they're busy and they're thinking, I can do it better. So everyone else is simply an extension of me. They're my leverage. And I'm afraid to do it there. But you are limiting the influence you're going to have versus it's not about me. My job is to make other people better so that they can make better decisions than I would make. Yeah. So I think it's because of fear on the leaders that they, they feel like they are the person that is just, they're afraid that the quality will go down if they're not involved in everything. So what's that first step to switch from fear to, to practice? To really read the first chapter and then read the sidebar, 10 ways you reveal it's not that you think it's all about you. Like the first step is to realize it's not about you. Mm. Leadership like, is just not about you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can preach all day on that. So I appreciate bringing us back full circle to yeah. what the essence of true leadership is. Francis, we bring it home. I wish we didn't have to. I could talk to you. I know. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) We bring it home with two final questions. Sure. That is tradition here on the podcast. And that is personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? I mean, um, that we are globally all experiencing the same pandemic. So, Usually there's like pockets of the world that are experiencing something. And so other pockets of the world can come in and help, but we're now all experiencing it. And um, it just makes me, there are so many people and so many areas that are just devastated by this. Um, 
and that's tugging at my heartstrings. I believe I'm like fiercely optimistic. I believe we're going to get to a good place, but that's going to be, but it just, it slays me how much pain health wise and financially and emotionally that people are going through every single day all around the world. It's like Mm. totally tugging, totally tugging. Mm. Appreciate that. And finally you get to end it with one thing that we can, uh, you know, take away and walk away with that's going to make a difference in our lives. Yeah. So I would say that if as a leader, you notice anything that's wrong, like you notice that men are thriving more than women, don't wait. Address it now. In fact, the, we were going to call the book How About Now, <laughs> but the publishers <laughs> suggest not to. But here's what I would say. Meaningful change only happens quickly. This notion that you can take a long time to change, it's actually a myth that people have been selling. Meaningful change happens when the thing you want to change is your number one priority. As soon as it's your number one and then your number three and then your number one, cynicism is going to get brought in. So when you see something, address it, address it with all your might, close it and move on to the next thing. So if you see the suffering of someone else on your watch, it's your obligation to address it. So please do, and please do it today. Fantastic. Francis, finally, if people want to connect with you uh, and learn more about you, and and can I throw this in and maybe even uh, have you accompany them to the <laughs> lesbians. Grace Hopper or yes. Lesbians Who Tech. <laughs> absolutely. You, I'm going to hold you to it now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you go to Lesbians and Who Tech and you can't find anyone to hire, I will come with you the next time. Guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how can they connect with you? What, what, uh, give uh, give yeah. us your website and all that good stuff. Yeah. So the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I just joined recently. And um, because those messages, I find so much easier than email. So I think that's a great way to connect. Uh, and then our website is called The Leader's Guide. So it's mm-hmm. theleadersguide.com. Uh, and that's where we have, like, the book is available everywhere. And if we we post that's where you can stay current on everything the leaders got and then if you want to interact it's on linkedin there you go she is francis fry and the book is called unleashed the unapologetic leaders guide to empowering everyone around you and let me just say it was a page turner and just when I thought, oh, man, I just learned something new. Next chapter, I just learned something new again. <laughs> oh, I'm so uh, glad. <laughs> so glad. It, it's a truly an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. It was a total pleasure. Thank you. One of the things I wanted to talk to Francis about, but we ran out of time, is what's called the leadership performance curve. So let me walk you through a quick thought exercise from page 10 of her book. Think about a time when you led a team and you spent considerable time with them, you know, about three months or more. What happened to the slope of other people's performance after you showed up? Did it go up or down? If people's performance actually went up, chances are you likely helped to create the conditions for other people to succeed. But after you showed up, their performance kind of flatlined or even became negative. Think back to the choices you made as a leader, or even as a teammate, and ask yourself this, what could I have done, big or small, to improve my team's performance? 
The purpose of this quick exercise is to start taking radical responsibility for the experiences of other people, which is the decision at the heart of empowerment leadership. I'm going to leave you to process that thought, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We would be grateful if you could share this message and also subscribe to our podcast. My special thanks again to Francis Fry for teaching us some good practices of love in action. Finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor an episode of Love in Action, you can reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com. Don't forget, love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Just try it and be convinced. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.